May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Good morning. So we are in part three of a three-part sermon series uh, in which we are focusing on our parish vision statement. You may have memorized it or it is written in the back of your bulletin on the very last sheet. Let's take a look at that now and say it together so it's fresh in our minds. Church of Our Savior exists to help people wherever they are on their spiritual journey to live into a personal and intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. So we've been asking uh, over the last couple of weeks, what does it look like to take our faith with us? Because how can we help others to live into a personal and intimate relationship with Jesus if we are not living into our own personal and intimate relationship with Jesus? How will the gospel make a difference to the watching world if it does not appear to them that the gospel makes a difference to us? Now, I would venture to say that most of us do want the good news of Jesus to make a difference in our lives, right? To be, in some sense, transformational. Uh, So we have been asking how this amazing grace of God that we have already received, how that works itself into our lives. So we've been looking at the epistle of James, and we have been uh, talking about taking your faith with you two weeks ago in your relationships, and last week in your speech, your words. And this week we're going to talk about taking your faith with you uh, into your work and your family. And of course, by work, I I don't mean what you get paid for. I just mean what keeps you busy. Maybe you get paid for it or you don't get paid for it. Um, You may have noticed that James is not talking specifically about work and family, right? He is talking about uh, what is the focus of our heart as we approach the world around us. Most of our waking hours in the world around us are spent with our work and our family. So we're going to talk principally this morning about the focus of our heart as we approach the world around us, and then we're going to begin to imagine uh, what that might look like in our work and our family. So James begins this section by drawing a contrast between earthly wisdom, which is characterized by envy and selfish ambition, and wisdom from above, which is characterized by purity and peace and gentleness and a willingness to yield and so forth. That phrase, willingness to yield, has kind of stuck in my consciousness this week as I've been going through that. This this contrast might make it sound a little like earthly wisdom, bad, wisdom from above, good. But it's probably more like earthly wisdom, natural, easy, what's already in us, and wisdom from above, supernatural, hard, uh, given from above, contrary to and redeeming what is already in us. So obviously James wants for us to have the wisdom from above over and against the earthly wisdom, but you might be able to see that it's not just as easy as choosing, right? Wanting peace 
and gentleness doesn't mean that we will not find envy and selfish ambition in our hearts. And So I think James summarizes uh, these two contrasting brands of wisdom very well. Third line from the bottom when he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. To the humble. These are essentially two postures of the human heart as we approach both God and the world around us. So let's examine our hearts this morning and ask what is pride and what is humility? What is pride and what is humility? We use the word pride a few different ways. We take pride in our work, for example, meaning we want to do a good job. That's a good thing. Uh, we, uh, maybe a parent tells their child, I'm proud of you. That's obviously a, a good thing as well, uh, positive uses. But James is using the word pride differently, right? He is using it in a negative sense. God opposes the proud. In this sense, the prideful heart is the fruit of earthly wisdom. The prideful heart is what causes envy. And selfish ambition. In this sense, the prideful heart is self centered and self oriented and self reliant, was the word I was looking for. Self centered, self oriented, self reliant. As opposed, of course, to being God centered, God oriented, and God reliant. Now, this person may, in fact, believe in theory that God loves him or her, but it this person just has a hard time trusting that love in difficult times, right? Believing that God will come through uh, in the clutch. And so uh, you might say that the prideful heart has a hard time letting God be God. You might say that the prideful heart describes all of our hearts, There's probably just as many iterations and expressions of pride as there are people, right? And in my experience, and believe me, I've got a lot of experience with pride. In my experience, pride is almost never actually an overestimation of one's strength. But rather, pride is a coping mechanism to cover up fear or insecurity. So a common example would be when you ask someone how they're doing, and, and they're not doing well at all, right? They're, on the inside, they're screaming. Their life is falling apart, and yet with a smile, they say to you, I'm doing great, doing great, thanks, how are you? I'm blessed, couldn't be better. You know, I mean, just, um, it is, uh, everything's not fine. But I don't know what I would do if you found out that everything is not fine. Ultimately, this is the belief that I'm the only one I can rely on. And that is pride. And nothing could be more natural, right? It just comes so naturally. We could go on and talk about bragging and boasting. Or we could talk about an unwillingness to accept help. We could talk about name-dropping or an overly competitive spirit or materialism, 
or just any number of things. At bottom, the prideful heart finds it hard to trust God to be God. And the prideful heart inevitably turns to itself as its own greatest source of strength. C.S. Lewis called this sort of pride the anti-God state of mind and the sin beneath all sins. Why does God oppose the proud? Well, it's because the proud are opposed to God. Now, you and I both know a couple of things. You and I know that this actually diagnoses all of us. And you and I also know that this that it really doesn't do any good to just say, cut it out. Stop being prideful. Early in my marriage, my mother uh, told me that when you fight with your spouse, you might as well just stamp your foot and say, I want my way. And for 20 years, I had been working to try to disprove her little theory. Because <laughs> I like my way. Now, I have tried, and I will continue to try, to, to be willing to yield, using James's language. And I can tell you, I have apologized far too many times to count, and I'm sure I will again, many times. But yet... I want my way. That's the prideful heart. I mean, we saw in our gospel passage, what, what does Jesus catch him arguing about? Which one's the greatest? It's not a new problem. So what about the humble heart? Well, the humble heart is the heart that lets God be God. The humble heart trusts God to fill in those insecurities and to answer those fears. The humble heart would rather exalt God than to exalt the self. And if the self will be exalted, then God's going to have to be the one who does it. The humble heart is the heart that trusts God in the difficulties. But let's be honest the humble heart is usually hard won. The humble heart has lived through sickness or desperation or humiliation. The humble heart has often learned the hard way. The humble heart has been pushed to the brink of what it means to trust God in the difficulty. And most of all, and perhaps in those difficult moments, the humble heart has received God's grace. The humble heart readily acknowledges that it could have done nothing to reach out in a sufficient way to God. And yet is so grateful that God in His grace and mercy has reached out to him or to her through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The humble heart sees that the only one with the right to be proud is God himself. But that same God humbled himself, becoming human, yielding himself to death on a cross so that you and I might have life. God gives grace to the humble. 
not as a reward, but simply because the humble are the ones who are open to receive the grace that God is already offering. And as a fruit of that grace, the humble heart loves God and loves its neighbor. And there is therefore a peace and a gentleness and a willingness to yield. The humble heart has received God's grace, has all the security and safety and solace it needs in God's grace, and therefore has the strength to give grace. So that's the prideful heart and the humble heart. And I want to be clear that I'm not saying that you're only Christian if you're humble. Nor am I saying that only Christians are humble. But I think that the Christian heart wants to recognize where it is prideful and seeks to be humble in those places. The Christian heart doesn't pretend that it doesn't have pride. But it recognizes that pride as an affront to God's grace and so is sorrowful for it and repentant of it. Because God poses the proud and gives grace to the humble. So, how might that distinction inform your heart as you head to work or school or your volunteer activities? And how might it inform your heart as you head home, head home from work to your family? And there's, just, there's no way to cover this exhaustively. Uh, and, and forgive me, I'm going to kind of draw my own experience. Forgive me if it seems like I'm working out my own therapy in the sermon. Um, seriously, but maybe, maybe you can relate. At least for me, at home, pride manifests itself as a need to control. Because... I want my way, right? And when that need to control gets, uh, that need to control gets real antsy, gets agitated, uh, gets angry when things get out of control, which in my family of five is pretty much every couple of minutes. So what would humility look like instead? And each of us have to do our own homework about this. You got to sort of understand what that looks like in your context. But for me, uh, it often means apology for my tone of voice. At my best, it means uh, watching my tone of voice on the front end. I mean, even if I feel it would be justified to raise my voice, to worry more about the relationship than being right. It means remembering humility, means remembering uh, to have a light heart when things don't go the way that I want them to or expect them to. To love anyway. Humility does not mean rolling over and not having opinions, but it means being quick to listen, slow to anger, and quick to forgive. It means peace and gentleness and a willingness to yield and a heart full of mercy. So when I'm wrestling between pride and humility, and I'm probably not articulating it that way in my mind, but uh, in one way or another I'm wrestling, and I want, I want to ask myself, do I want to preserve the relationship or do I just want my way? 
And I often find it helpful to ask, um, what, I, what am I going to be more happy about in 10 years looking back on this? It's never me getting my way. Now, I certainly don't have, am not pretending to have pride beaten or to have figured out humility. But I know that when I am focused on Jesus' love for me and particularly on his gracious sacrifice for me, that I am much more likely to be inclined towards a posture of humility than towards a posture of pride. And for me, that is a minute-by-minute discipline. And I fail a lot. So in the workplace, and again, whatever that looks like for you, even if it's a volunteer, you stay at home, the question is, what am I working for? Right? Uh, am I working for the good of the organization, or am I working for the accolades? Am I a mercenary doing only what's best for me, or am, or am, am I a servant leader uh, serving the good of all? You may have read the classic business book, Good to Great. Uh, author and researcher Jim Collins uh, lists humility as one of the defining character traits for the best leaders, what he calls a level five leader. He says they work like crazy, but they're constantly giving all the credit to others. They're not the famous CEOs. They're totally unassuming. I recently heard about a business leader who sort, sort of flaunted his Christianity, but who had a reputation for very questionable business ethics. Stories like that are a dime a dozen. And it suggests that perhaps they are not taking their faith with them into the workplace. Now, you don't have to hold a Bible study or walk the person in the cubicle next to you down the Romans road, the four spiritual laws. You don't have to evangelize in the workplace. There might be a place for those things. But you don't have to do those things in order to take your faith with you. But you do have an opportunity to be a man or a woman of integrity, to be a servant, to be quick to give credit and recognition to others, to be concerned with the quality of your relationships and the quality of your work, and certainly the morality of your ethics. To sum up, really, this whole series, God has placed His Holy Spirit within us. Therefore, He is with us always, wherever we go, whatever time of the day or night, any time of the week. God is with you, and you are with God. We are saved from the judgment of God by the grace of God and not by our own good works. Grace is always the context. But it is our works that are the evidence for our faith. How we treat others, how we speak, how we live our lives and our work and our family. And I'm sure we could just take weeks and weeks to go on and on into other areas. James teaches us that saving faith goes with us. Saving faith has hands and feet. And as we focus more, on more, more and more on Jesus, we will think less and less about ourselves. Not less and less of ourselves, but less and less about ourselves. And we will find the opportunities ever increasing to help others wherever they are in their spiritual journey to live into a personal and intimate 
relationship with Jesus Christ. So take your faith with you, dear friends. Flee from the devil. 